Father, I pray once again that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's a lot of stuff that goes on on an elementary playground. Uh, you may remember that from your own days in elementary school or having witnessed that in, uh, as an adult. I, I remember back as a child, you know, in grade school, when we go out for recess, uh, typically we'd start a game of softball or football or tag. And, and usually, you know, it was just running around and a lot of fun. But ever so often, you know, some kind of conflict would arise and a couple of guys would start to get into it. And, you know, they, it looked as if they might uh, actually have a fist fight with one another, but they, you knew neither one of them really wanted to do that. And so the alternative was to get into a verbal sparring match with each other. And you've all, you've all probably, you, you know what I'm talking about. We say, oh, yeah, take that back. Oh, yeah, I'd like to see you try. You know, I mean, you have those kinds of things that go on, and you hear this verbal sparring, and nobody really wants to get into a dust-up about it, but they don't want to back down either, so there's this verbal stuff going on. I was thinking about that recently, and I, remind, I was remem remembering a story I once heard about a teacher on a playground who overheard one of these one of these kinds of verbal sparring matches going on. And one kid finally went to that point that you, you, know, you sometimes go to, well, my dad can beat up your dad. And the other kid, without missing a beat, looked back and said, so what, my mom can beat up my dad. <laughs> what does that mean? It kind of ended right there, you know. I mean, what are you, you going to go from that? There's something in us that when we get into conflict, we don't want to back down. We, we, we may not want to fight necessarily, but there is something in us that wants to be right. We want everybody to know we're right. And when we get into those situations, we, we just feel like we can't back down. We don't want to lose face. We don't want to lose, period. And, and, and sometimes, particularly if we're talking about uh, spiritual issues, there's something in us that says, well, I shouldn't back down. I can't lose because I'm right. Because I'm, I'm following the right theology or I'm following the right person or I have the right mindset about this. And, and in, in those moments, we say, well, it may not, it may look like a fight and it may look like I'm not backing down, but I'm really standing up for what's right. And you see that all the time in our world. I mean, you see this in politics, you see it in business, and you see it in the church. And in those moments when we, we, try, we justify, and maybe rightly so, the fact that we're not going to back down, we're going to stand our ground, and we're going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with this person and do whatever it takes to win because we're right. In the midst of all of that, I hear the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians and saying, well, hang on just a second. In the first part of this, this, uh, this letter, we didn't read this, but what precedes what we read, verses 10 to 17, Paul jumps right into the problems in Corinth. There's disunity. They're fighting with each other. 
We see that as the letter progresses. There's this unity about spiritual gifts. There's this unity about, you know, who has the, the most authority. There's this unity about all the different ways that they are intera- interacting with one another as the church. And right from the beginning, Paul gets into it. And in this beginning section, he says, they, that tells us that they're fighting about who's the best person to follow. Some of them are saying, I follow Apollos. He's the right teacher. He's got it. Other people say, no, I follow Peter. He knows what he's talking about. Others say, I follow Paul. He's got the answers. And what I find fascinating is that Paul doesn't write to them and say, okay, the solution to this is let me tell you who's right and who's wrong. I mean, that's what I would want to do. I'd want to clarify, all right, well, this is right, this is wrong, that guy's wrong, this guy's right. And of course, if I was in the mix, I'm right, right? He doesn't do that. Instead of telling them who's right and who's wrong, Paul says, let me help you turn your attention back to the cross. That's your problem. You're living as if the cross is peripheral to your relationships and to your life. That's an odd thing for Paul to say, to appeal to the cross. When you stop and think about it, we are so used to embracing the cross. We're so used to seeing the cross as as a positive, wonderful thing that God does. We sometimes forget that the cross in in the first century is a symbol of losing its weakness. The only people who, who end up on a cross are criminals, outcasts, and sinners. Nobody wants to end up on a cross. No one wants to be connected to a cross. It's hard for us because... We so embrace this symbol of the cross. We wear it on necklaces, earrings. We put it on our clothes. We put it on our cars. We do all these things to identify the fact that we're Christians. And that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Except that sometimes it can be, it can be watered down. If we were to, honestly, if we were to take that ancient symbol and modernize it today, maybe we'd be wearing necklaces with electric chairs on them or gallows, or guillotines, or maybe worse, a rap sheet. All of the things that identify us as failures, as someone that society has rejected, as people who are weak, losers. I mean, the the cross in the first century is a symbol of everything that society rejects, hates, doesn't want to be. And Paul says to them, that's our faith. What kind of a, no wonder the, the, no wonder the, the people who are not following Jesus think it's ridiculous. They think it's foolishness. Of course it is. Of course it's foolishness to say that this symbol of death and losing is the heart of our faith. That's what we appeal to? Paul says the Jews, they want signs. They want to see the power of God. They will be convinced that God is at work when there's power. 
And, and the, the Gentiles, they want wisdom. They want to be able to explain and have knowledge and understand. And those are both wonderful things. And God, through history, there's no, no being more powerful than God is. There's no being more wise than God is. Scripture tells us that again and again and again. But Paul says the greatest symbol of our faith is not power and wisdom, it's the cross. What kind of God associates with a cross? In the ancient world, the ancient gods that people worship do everything in their power to use their power and their wisdom to disconnect themselves from things like a cross, from losing, from dying, from human struggles. All of the gods try to get away from that, except one. Just one. And we're often looking for respectability in culture. We don't like it when people think we're foolish. We don't like it when people look at us as if we are losers. And so we often reshape the way we talk about our faith and reshape the way we think about our faith so that people will see us and say, oh, they're respectable. I, I, I buy into that. I don't agree with it, but, you know, okay, that makes sense. And Paul is saying, while that's not wrong to want people to, 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 to treat people with respect and to, and to want people to think well of us, if we have to give up the core of our faith to do that, there's a problem. Philip Yancey, in one of his books, tells about being in Mumbai, India. And he, he said uh, he went out one day for a walk throughout this great city. And um, throughout the day, he encountered the, the four great religions of the world that, he, that are a part of the culture of, of that city. He said, but virtually every street you walk down, there was a cart or a temple or something about, a Hindu, about the Hindu gods. These idols and all the ways in which Hindus worship their gods, he said it was everywhere around you, as you can imagine. He said they went down another street and there was a, a, a mosque. And he said he looked at that mosque with its dome, minaret pointing to the sky and the greatness of God and the power of God and quite frankly the distance of God. And then he came down another street and there was a Buddhist temple. And in the, in the Buddhist temple it was dark, a lot of incense. The monks were chanting and praying and there was a, a statue of the Buddha there. And he was reminded that at the heart of the Buddha's faith is, is a separation, a, trying to, to remove yourself from the struggles and, the, and the, the realities of living in a broken, painful world. And then he came across a church. He said in many ways it looked a lot like the mosque. But there was one difference. At the top of the church was a steeple, was a, was a cross. And he said something about being in, in a, another country, something about witnessing all of these other places of worship caused him to step back and ask himself, what are we doing? I mean, we don't have idols to worship 
we, we don't have the same kinds of ways people think. And he said, all of a sudden it struck him, why in the world would we choose the cross? I mean, I know the cross is important, but he said, shouldn't we make the symbol of an empty tomb up there instead? Because the empty tomb is the symbol of power, and the empty tomb is the symbol of victory. The cross is the symbol of defeat. And yet that's the heart of our faith. Because what looks like defeat is really the pathway to victory. It's interesting to me that Paul doesn't appeal to the resurrection as he's talking with them. He gets to that. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most glorious uh, writings of the resurrection we have in all of Scripture. But in this moment, when he's talking to them about their disunity, and when he's talking to them about their struggles with one another, his appeal is not to the victory and the power of Christ. His appeal is to the cross of Christ. If the cross is taken away from our faith, then we live out our lives very, very differently. If there's no cross, then what sense does blessed are those are you who are persecuted really make? If there is no cross, then does it really make sense to live our lives to turn the other cheek or to go the extra mile? If there is no cross, then basically we accomplish what we need to in this world for God using the exact same strategy and the exact same plan that everybody else does. Power, might, wisdom, winning, overcoming. In fact, without the cross, we, we have every right in the world not just to try and convince people to be Christian, we have the right to force them to become Christian. Without the cross, we use every power available to us to drag people and to push people and to force people into the kingdom. Without the cross, we really don't have the same kind of calling about how we live together as community. But with the cross, it changes everything. It doesn't minimize right and wrong. There's still truth. truth. In fact, truth is central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Truth is vital. It doesn't mean that we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish more than we could have dreamed or imagined. It doesn't mean that there's a difference between right and wrong and good and evil. All of those things are true. It's just that at the center of all of that is the cross. I find it fascinating that when Paul writes here in verse 18, he says that, that the, the power of the gospel and the power of the cross that looks foolish to everybody else is actually power being saved. What intrigued me about it is the fact that Paul uses a present participle here. He, he could have said the power of the cross is that we have been saved. The power of the cross is that it saved us, and all of it is past tense. And because that's certainly true. There are moments in time where, where we open our hearts to Christ. There are decisions that we make where we, we experience the, the forgiving grace of God through the cross. 
But Paul says we are being saved. And he includes himself in that. And I think, or at least I wonder, if the point that Paul is making is that if the cross is something that only has a bearing on some decision we've made at some point in time in the past, then we've misunderstood it. Because that assumes that we, we engage with the cross and then we can walk away from it. But the reality is, because of our sinfulness and our brokenness, and because we are all on a journey to holiness and on a journey to, to be like Christ, we need the cross at the center of our lives every single moment. We are, in essence, through the cross, being continually saved, being continually transformed, being continually made more and more like Christ. The holiest people I know are not people who have experienced Christ in the past and then have come to the place of saying, I'm so good, I don't need the cross anymore. The holiest people I know are the people who cling continually to their need for the cross, their need for the Spirit, their need for Christ at the center of everything of life. And when that's our mindset, it changes everything about how we operate. It's one thing to know in our, with our minds that the cross needs to be at the center of our lives. It's a complete another thing to live that way. And when we live that way, when we have disagreements, when we see things in ways that are different from other people, we handle those things very differently. Humility becomes a part of those discussions. Love come, becomes a part of those discussions. We no longer have this mindset that I have to win, but rather we have this mindset that says, I need to help, I need to, to be Jesus. I need the spirit of Jesus in this moment. I need to exude the, the spirit of Christ in this moment. I need my life, the way of my life, to be the way of the cross in this moment. I read an article just this week from a Christian publication that I get, and it was, a, it was a, an op-ed piece, actually, and it was sort of politically related and this person was, was writing about their frustration and their disagreement with some political decisions that were being made. And, and there were a fair amount of the article that I agreed with. But I was, as I was reading through it, something just felt wrong to me. And when I got to the end of it, I realized that it wasn't so much what the person was saying, though I did have some disagreements, but it was really the tone in which they wrote it was sarcastic, belittling, demeaning of these people that they disagreed with. And, you know, and in that moment, what I found interesting is that as I was reading that, and I thought to myself, wow, how terrible this person is that they would write like that. And then the Holy Spirit says, <clears throat> um, you've never written like that? You've never thought like that? See, here's the thing. I think we get in these moments of fighting these 
battles that we're in. And we often, we often do what Peter does in the garden where he picks up a sword and swings it, and we're going to win this battle with the sword for Jesus. Now, I don't think most of us, at least I hope not, are swinging metal swords, but maybe our sword looks like an ink pen or a computer keyboard or our tongue. These are the kinds of things that, that living with the cross at the center of our lives affects. It changes. We have to think about things differently. We react to things differently. We respond to things differently. We don't always get it right. Maybe sometimes the, most, the, most, the clearest vision for people of the cross in our lives is our willing to say, hey, I blew it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. It's that surrender to the Spirit of Christ. Because the way of life is the way of the cross. And what Paul is trying to help us understand is that what looks like foolishness is actually the power of the gospel. How are we going to win the world? Through the mindset of the cross. And that starts with us. It starts with God's people. That, that you and I have this sense with one another that our relationships are built around the cross at the center. And out of that comes our witness to other people. Because our witness to people who don't know Jesus is not just us as individuals, as important as that is, it's also the corporate witness of the church. That people look at us and hear what Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. If the cross is at the center of all that you are. It's a, it's a huge challenge. That's why we come to this table today. Because we need to be reminded that the only way we will ever live with the cross at the center of our lives, individually and corporately, is if we understand that Jesus gives us the grace to do that through the cross. And Jesus goes to the cross not begrudgingly, not unwillingly. He is not forced to the cross. He goes lovingly to the cross, willingly to the cross. He does that. He takes on this symbol of shame and rejection and failure as the greatest act of God's love for you and me and this whole world. And when we begin to see that, then living the way of life as the way of the cross becomes simply our way of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors ourselves. I have no idea what may, what situations you may end up in. But I do know that through the grace of Jesus Christ, the way of the cross is the way of life for us and for others. 
Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Father, forgive us when we can become so enamored with ourselves and give us grace to embrace the cross through the love and grace of Christ. Father, pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake today. May they be food for our souls. And the grace of Christ poured out to each one of us. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen.